I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. Today, I'm talking to Angela Chen, the author of Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex, which is out now from Beacon Press. For a full transcript of our conversation, check out this episode's show notes on readingwomenpodcast.com. And make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a single episode. So this week that you're listening to this podcast is Asexuality Awareness Week. And I am so excited to be able to talk to Angela Chen about ACE. Angela has put so much work into this book, researching it and interviewing other asexual people for it. And you can definitely tell uh, how well-crafted it is. And I really appreciate how the book starts out by defining asexuality and moves kind of from asexuality 101 to more in-depth topics. And uh, in our conversation today, Angela goes over some uh, basic uh, definitions and ideas around asexuality, and we talk a little bit about that. And I really appreciate her explaining these things because I think a lot of people have questions about asexuality or are confused about what it means, and this book provides some clarity for that. But I think one of the great things about it as well is that asexual people can see themselves represented in these pages. Maybe you're asexual and you have rarely read books about uh, your experience. And also, there are so many different kinds of experiences represented in this book. So I hope if you are asexual, you're able to see uh, yourself in this book. So a little bit about Angela Chen before we get started. Uh, She is a journalist in New York. Her reporting and essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, the Guardian, Paris Review, and more. She is the author of Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex, and you can find her on her website, AngelaChen.org. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Angela about her book, Ace. Well, welcome to the podcast, Angela. I'm so excited to have you on. I'm so excited to chat about the book. Thanks for having me. So how are you holding up during the hellscape that is 2020? I have been better, honestly. And, you know, the funny thing is I'm originally, as in I was born in Wuhan, China. So way before everyone else in the U.S. was worried about the coronavirus, I was watching it, you know, decimate my hometown. And where I grew up in the United States is... um, near San Francisco in California, a state in the Western United States. And so now, you know, we're all, I'm watching the, the wildfires take over the West Coast, which is where my family is. So it's, it's just been a stressful year, to be honest. Yeah. And uh, there, there really are no good words for 2020 right now. Um, but I am sending you all the love and good vibes for positivity and uh, Silver lining is that your book has just come out, which is really a fabulous piece of uh, nonfiction research that you've put out. So um, hopefully that will cause things to pick up a little bit for you. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, So this book, Ace, is about asexuality and what it reveals about desire, society, and the meaning of sex. And I really found this book you know that emoji where the top of the smiley face is like brain is exploding mm-hmm. uh that is 
that was me reading this book. And so I'm very excited to talk to you about all of the things. Um, but I think a great place to start would be what is asexuality and what inspired you to write this researched piece of nonfiction on the topic? I'll start with the second question because that leads into the first question. So the reason I decided to write this book is because I identify as asexual and it took me a very long time to realize that because my experience of asexuality was so different from what I thought asexuality was and from what I think most people think asexuality is. So in my early 20s, when I was grappling with asexuality and learning about it and learning these new ways to see the world, I was just like, why doesn't everyone know about this? You know, in the same way that I think everyone should know more about queerness and the queer lens and know more about race and gender, I think asexuality should be normalized and understood because it can bring so much, even if you're not asexual. And so to talk about what is asexuality, the official definition is someone who doesn't experience sexual attraction. But what I think most people think it means is someone who doesn't have sex or someone who is not interested in sex. I first came across the word when I was maybe 14 years old. And at that time, I was like, oh, that's that's so interesting. There's these other people in the world who are like that. But I never thought that I could be asexual. You know, at 14, I hadn't had sex yet, but it was interesting to me. I was definitely thought that I was going to have sex one day. How could I be asexual, right? And I think that's the experience for a lot of people. Definitely, there are people who are asexual and they're, they're what we call sex repulsed. So they are not interested in sex. They don't want to have sex. But there's a lot of people who don't experience sexual attraction, but they may want to have sex for emotional reasons. And in those cases, it can be so hard to tell that you're asexual because you're using the same words and language as everyone around you, and you're maybe still in relationships. And for a long time, it seems like it doesn't seem like you're any different from anyone who's allosexual, which is the term for non-asexual. And that was something that I really appreciate the way you delved into that about how some asexuals are sex favorable and some are repulsed, which I feel like, you know, that is the stereotypical, you know, um, thing that comes to mind when people think about asexuality. Um, but what were some other misconceptions about asexuality that you wanted to tackle with this book? One of them is that asexuality is the same as celibacy, which isn't. You know, celibacy is about behavior. You can be celibate but still be sexually attracted to a lot of people. And you can be asexual and have sex and enjoy sex but not actually be sexually attracted to others. Another one is the idea that being asexual means that you don't want romance or relationships. There is the term aromanticism, which means you don't experience romantic attraction. And there's a lot of overlap, but they're not the same. So some asexual people are heteroromantic, so they're attracted, romantically attracted to people of the opposite gender. Some are panromantic and so on. There's this idea that asexuality is caused by disability or medical condition or by sexual assault or trauma. And there's definitely people in the community who are survivors of sexual assault or who are disabled, but that's not, you know, it's not inherently caused by that. I think there's this idea that Asexuality is this internet orientation that's very much associated with young people because I think young people are the people for whom asexuality is most accessible because there's a lot of discourse on it that's happening on Tumblr, you know, or on the internet. But people who are asexual have existed for a long time. So those are some of the main ones. 
I I really appreciated the chapter that you had about disability and asexuality because as someone with a disability, it's always assumed that I'm asexual, that I'm not interested. You have the entire chapter dedicated to uh, the intersections of disability and asexuality. Um, And as you were researching that, uh, what were some of the things that surprised you that that you learned that you hadn't realized before researching the chapter? I think that before researching the chapter, there was the sense that disability, the disability movement and the asexuality movement, both of which are political, were somehow in tension with each other. And as I learned more, I think what I learned confirmed that. Because, you know, there is this long history of people thinking that asexuality is a, not, it's not a disability, it's like a medical problem that should be fixed with drugs or with therapy or something like that. And so ACEs, in especially the beginning of the movement, tried really hard to be like, asexuality has nothing to do with disability. We're all able-bodied, we're all happy. At the same time, with the disability community, as you said, there's assumption that if you're disabled, and it might be physically disabled, or maybe you're neurotypical, that you're asexual anyway. So of course, many disabled people want to say we're not asexual, we do want to have sex. And so I think there does end up being this tension. And I spoke to someone who is ace and disabled, and she said something like, the groups are well-meaning, but they just toss you between each other like a hot potato. Like both groups have been oppressed by different stereotypes. And in trying to reject the stereotype, they end up gatekeeping in a way that I don't think is good for either community. And that tension was something that just a perspective that I had I had never thought of before uh, as you know belonging only to one of those groups. And so it's really it was really interesting to see laid out on the page of this book. A lot of the norms that we have around sex and desire are made for allosexuals. Like the whole society is made that way. And it's really interesting because um, you talk about some of the assumptions that society makes about sex and how that affects people who are asexual. And you know, there was a time in my life, you know, I've never been interested in casual sex. And so I had a doctor like dress down and want me to go to a psychiatrist or, or something for this problem that I had. And I'm like, what is happening right now? And you detail some experiences that asexual people had like that only this is this is, you know, this is the orientation, this is how they're made and how it wasn't just one moment, it's a repeated occurrence in society. So you talk about compulsory sexuality. So what is that concept in society and how does that play out? And I guess, how is it harmful for asexual people? Compulsory sexuality builds off Adrian Rich's idea of compulsory heterosexuality, which many people are more familiar with because we often call it heteronormativity, right? The assumption that everyone by default is straight and it's just natural to be straight. And so it can be very hard for people to realize, oh, I'm actually bisexual. Oh, I'm actually lesbian and so on. And compulsory sexuality, it's the way that we're conditioned to believe that everyone wants sexuality of some sort. And if you don't, you're broken. And if you don't, maybe you're repressed. And there's so many ways in which it manifests. You mentioned one, which is in the medical context. 
So I recently had my book launch and there were a lot of aces there. And in the comments, they were saying, it's so hard to find a therapist or a doctor who knows anything about asexuality, who won't tell me that I need to, like you said, like maybe take medication or that I have some deep buried issues around sexuality when that's not what I'm there to go to therapy for. That's one example. There's um, consent is another example I think about a lot. And it doesn't, it's not even about whether you're asexual or not in relationships. If there's one person who has lower desire, we, people often think that the lower desire partner is broken and it's their responsibility to quote unquote fix themselves. But the problem isn't low desire, it's incompatibility, right? If both people had the same level of desire, wouldn't be a problem. But instead we put all the burden on the lower partner. Like it's like you could barely even imagine asking the higher desire partner to try to be celibate. But we think it's totally okay to ask the lower desire partner. It's like natural and good for you. You have to make yourself want sex. Um, Sexuality is so bound up with gender. You know, if you're a man, the idea is that if you're not going out and having a lot of sex and scoring, especially with women in a heterosexual context, then you're not a real man. And if you're a woman, sometimes there's the idea that you should be sexually shy. But sometimes there's also the idea that if you don't care about sex, you're just repressed and you need to, you know, free yourself and throw off your chains. And the liberated woman is always a woman who loves having a lot of sex because sex is cool and feminist. There's all it's just in the air. You know, a lot of it is really subtle, but compulsory sexuality really is everywhere. And once you kind of know the word and know what it means, I think people do start seeing it everywhere in their lives. It's sort of like once once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it's always there. And this book made me think about a lot of the conversations that are happening on the Internet around sexuality. In particular, uh, you mentioned sex positivity. And while that movement, there's a lot of positives, there's also, you talked about um, some things that sex positivity overlooks. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that in the context of for people who are asexual? So compulsory sexuality is complicated because it exists at the same time that sex negativity exists, right? Of course, the double standard exists. Of course, there's slut shaming. Of course, many people, especially women, are shamed into not really understanding what their own desires are. All of that is true. At the same time, sex positivity really makes it seem like sex is this inherently good thing. And if you don't enjoy it, then there's something wrong with you. Like I've talked to aces and they said, you know, especially female um, feminist aces who said, you know, every time I said I wasn't into sex, people would be like, oh, maybe you just need to try kink. Maybe you just need to masturbate more. Maybe you just need different partners. Like there was always like she was unfinished somehow. I needed to unlock sexuality instead of it being okay for her to be the way she was and she can still be a feminist it felt like loving sex was almost like a requirement of her to be a feminist and her to be a good feminist and i thought that that's a tension that many women uh many ace feminists feel and there's always a a strange value upon your education or your culturedness uh, based on how many people you've slept with or your body count. You point out, like you said, like that is really a rough spot to be in for people who are asexual. But asexuality is is not new. Um, Why do you think there's now a growing uh, sense of awareness or more awareness uh, for that orientation versus earlier years in our society? I think the ace movement started because the internet made it easier for people to find each other. You know, before, of course, there were 
people who are asexual, but they couldn't congregate because we, you know, don't necessarily all live in the same place. Um, we might be a community, but we're not exactly like a community like the Amish, for example, who tend to, you know, geographically cluster together. And so internet made it easier to facilitate discussion and to define what asexual means and to organize and to connect each other. And that's really been the reason why asexuality is a movement, which of course is still growing and of course still has many discussions, has started to become more mainstream. But to be honest, it's been 20 years and I don't know how much of the mainstream it really has gone, you know, because I think most people still misunderstand what asexuality is. And even if they understand the literal definition, I think many people think, oh, this is something that's very niche. It doesn't have any relevance to me unless I'm asexual, which I don't think is true. And we'll be back with more from this episode of Reading Women after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode is Acorn TV. There's a world of entertainment options out there, and by that, I mean there's a lot of compelling international shows you may be missing out on. It's time to burst the domestic TV bubble and check out Acorn TV. Acorn TV is a commercial-free streaming service that's rooted in British television. It's home to sophisticated and artful storytelling and top-rated mysteries, addicting dramas, heartfelt comedies, and so much more. Unlike other British streaming services, Acorn TV has content from Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and beyond. If you're a fan of quirky comedy, then the other one is a must-watch. It follows two sisters from very different worlds who had no idea the other existed until their father drops dead. I love a good British television show. I mean, there's so many David Tennant things out there that I have never seen, apparently. And so I spent this past weekend watching some of those. I also am a huge fan of Vera. There is nothing like seeing an older woman with a chronic illness solving crime. I love her snark and I love her take on what is typically a male a character of this like jaded older like inspector but she is a woman and so that changes the way that she looks at things and i love that so so much and i've struggled to find all the different seasons but i was overjoyed that acorn tv has all of the seasons there and i am just ugh, i'm in my happy place right now and of course, there are always new things to discover on Acorn TV because it's loaded with thousands of hours of binge-worthy content. You can stream on all of your favorite devices for just $5.99 a month. Acorn TV has given a special deal for Reading Women listeners. Uh, you can escape to Britain and beyond without leaving your seat. You can try Acorn TV for free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use the promo code READINGWOMEN. That's acorn, A-C-O-R-N dot TV, code readingwomen, to get your first 30 days for free. You can find all of that information linked in our show notes. And thanks so much to Acorn TV for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women. Yeah, I just read a, a book called Breasts and Eggs by Miyako Kawakami, and it's about, they they never use the term asexual, but, but a, it's a woman who is really just uninterested in sex, but she still wants a child. And this book was translated from Japanese, and um, it's, you know, done really well there and here. It's gotten great reviews, and, and that really illustrated a complication that, you know, she was still wanting kids, but she 
was not interested in sex. So how does that work for her in a Japanese context? And just thinking about that book while reading yours, just it just featured a lot of complications that allosexuals never really think of. Uh, you, you talk about different ways of parenting in the book. Is that something that you saw a lot of different examples of and you chose like ones that you thought were the most relevant or what was your experience with that? With regard to parenting, I think there's not that many examples. There's definitely people who are ace and their parents, some people who realize they were ace after marriage and after having kids. But most aces in general are pretty young. And because of that, I think many have not yet reached the age where it's become a big enough issue. And so the person that I profile in the book, David Jay, who is one of the most prominent members of the ace community, and he's in his late 30s, he is in a um, three-person family. So he is co-parents with with a straight couple, and he is one of the fathers to their biological daughter. And he's a father of both you know, emotionally and legally as well, because third parent adoption is legal in California. And I thought that was just a lovely example of being creative. And, you know, maybe you don't care about sex, maybe you don't care about romance, but you really want to have a kid. And he found a way to do that. And I think that's an example of one of the ways that the ACE lens encourages us to be more creative. Because right now we really conflate so many things. We conflate sex with desire, with romance, with love, with kids. But is it possible, like, can we have romance without sex? Can we have kids without sex? Like, what would that mean? What flexibility would that give us to, you know, kind of mix and match and build the life that we want? You talk a lot about that and how uh, partnerships for asexual people are are very often very complicated in, in different ways and how Legally, there are a lot of complications there as well. And you discuss queer platonic partners uh, quite a bit in the book and, you know, the experiences that different asexual people have had with that. Could you talk a little bit more about that and the complications of trying to have a queer platonic partner in, um, I guess, our government system where we typically have one idea of partnership or life partnership? Yeah, absolutely. So the term queer platonic was coined by these writers, S.C. Smith and Kaz, who were just frustrated with the way that our society really, really emphasizes and centers romance. And I think that will not be a surprise to anyone listening. You know, romance is seen as more important than friendship. You know, of course you would move to be with your romantic partner, but would you move to just be with, quote unquote, just a friend? Even at the level of language, we have terms like just friends, which seems to denigrate friendship. And some aces are aromantic, as I said, though not all aces. And for them, I think this kind of culture often leaves them feeling alienated. You know, they want deep and important relationships. And of course, they're just as capable of love and feeling relationships. They just don't care specifically about romance. And so a queer platonic relationship is like a new kind of relationship. For some people, I think they really do feel differently about their queer platonic partner than they do about either a platonic friend or, you know, romantic partner. But for others, I think it's actually this radical way of reimagining what partnership can be. You know, it's like a way of saying we have all these rules about these unspoken rules about what it means to be a friend to someone, what it means to be a partner to someone. We have all these unspoken expectations, but we don't have unspoken expectations around the word 
queer platonic because nobody really knows what that means. So if we're queer platonic partners, can we build our own relationship? Can we talk about our relationship that's not romantic in the same way that people talk about romantic relationships, like setting the terms. What do I mean to you? How do we want to see each other? How often do we want to see each other? And these are really conversations that most friends, even close friends, don't have, but that you do have with a romantic partner. You have a moment in the book where you list media where you're trying to figure out like what things don't have romance in them. Um, and I was thinking in particular about the books and I recently read Running by Natalia Sylvester and you have like this list of like, you know, things that truly don't have romance in them. And I was like, oh, this is one of those, but it's a very short list still. Uh, what about that lure that romance must be in a movie or a book or whatever the media might be to, to be like a legitimate, passionate story? Why do you think that's so ingrained in our society? And what are ways that people can support a sexual creators or, or films or, or books that fall under this category of not having romance in them? So I guess that is a two-part question. So I apologize in advance. No problem. I think the first thing I just want to clarify is when I was listing, you know, the how common it is for books to have that romantic theme, I was talking specifically about what we would consider literary fiction. Because in like YA and genre fiction and science fiction, there it's it's far more common for genre fiction to not have that romantic plot. And I think that says something too, right? If you only see people like you who are aromantic or you only see storylines that interest you in so-called non-mainstream um, areas or in genres that are supposedly for those who are, you know, teens, I think that just shows how, quote-unquote, serious literary mainstream fiction, serious stories are supposed to always involve romance. And seeing that does something to you. So to answer your question, I think it really has to do with a lack of imagination and just it's just a cultural script. I think it is true, of course, that for many people having um, romantic relationships is passionate and it just has a huge impact on you. And that's been the case for me. But it's also been the case for me that I've had friend breakups that were also extremely painful and also full of emotion, but I just don't see them in the same way. I think the way that I think about culture is that it teaches you it, what to look at and what to shine a spotlight on. And when all culture is saying, oh, when you have a romantic relationship, it's going to change your life. And very little culture says, oh, the same thing can happen in friendship. The same thing can happen at work. Then when creators start to write, they they just follow the script. You know, like I think if you told most creators, OK, you have to write a novel and it can't have a romantic relationship in them, they would maybe struggle a little at first and they would sit and think and they would be like, oh yeah, like I could write about my mom, my relationship with her. Oh, I could write about, you know, what happened at summer camp with my counselor. You know, you would start eventually thinking of these plots that can be just as nuanced and interesting and emotional and, you know, done well. So the reader wouldn't even notice the lack of romance. But because we don't have that constraint, then I think people just immediately go to what they know, what they remember, what comes to the top of their mind. So I think that's kind of the answer to the first part. The second part about how to support ace creators, for me, it's, it's not about telling people you can't write romance or it's not about telling people that's bad to write romance. I think it's really about balancing things out. So I think often it's a structural issue. I think um, sometimes people who write 
novels, you know, mainstream literary novels that don't have romance, they're told that asexuality won't sell or aromanticism won't sell. And if you have gatekeepers saying things like that, then of course we're going to perpetuate the same kind of, you know, cycles around what stories get told. Of course, there is the general you know, idea, like try to find more ace creators and support them, but on a structural level, like be more open to reading different types of literature, like editors and agents and publishers, like think about what else there might be that could be so great and shows a different part of the emotional landscape. I found it really fascinating that that genre fiction and different books in those categories feature more asexual and aromantic uh, characters. And, and now that you've said that, it's like, oh, yes. A lot of my LGBTQ plus friends talk about their love of um, YA literature and how oftentimes that's a, a bit ahead of other genres or other age groups or categories of literature. Um, but you talk also in the book about how how asexual people are part of the queer community, uh, but oftentimes there are challenges uh, feeling a part of the larger umbrella of LGBTQ+. Um, could you talk a little bit about those challenges and some of the initiatives that asexual people are taking to point that out and try to rectify that? Absolutely. So I think aces are queer. And of course, many aces intersect with other parts of the LGBT umbrella. You know, many are trans or non or non-binary or many are, you know, you can be ace and lesbian, for example, or ace and gay. But I think that sometimes there's this idea that asexuality is not queer enough or that if you're asexual, but you're cis and you're heteromantic, then you're not queer enough. And I think that that kind of attitude just prevents us from coalition building. I think that absolutely the obstacles that aces face are very different. You know, if you're ace and you're heteromantic and you're walking down the street, you're just not going to be the target, the potential target of maybe danger the way you might be if you're lesbian and walking down the street with your partner. And in many ways, if you're ace, sometimes maybe you don't have to come out and that afford you an amount of privilege. What I always say is that asexuality is often called, you know, the invisible orientation. And invisibility, it is a privilege. It protects you. But invisibility also can can harm you in many ways because so many people just don't realize that they're ace and they're confused. They think they're broken. You know, one person I interviewed um, got blood tests in high school because she wasn't developing sexual desire or sexual attraction. And then she kept thinking, oh, I'm sick. This, I'm different. And it's because I have cancer or something like that. I do think that within the larger queer community, asexuality is sometimes not as accepted as the you know other parts of the umbrella. Some people still think the A in LGBTQIA stands for ally when that's, when that's not the case. And in terms of what aces are doing, I think that aces, you know, heteromantic aces, aces that I know, I don't think aces ever want to take resources away from other people. You know, I don't think aces are saying we have it the hardest. I don't think aces want to play that game. And I don't think we should play that game. It's more about finding commonality and saying we all want, we all want um, to be supported and affirmed. It's, um, about being seen and, and embraced and included in that way and that there's there's room for everyone. Yeah, exactly. I really appreciate you uh, pointing that out in the book and, and discussing it 
um, in a lot of detail because I think oftentimes there's this narrative that we tell ourselves that that the LGBTQ plus um, umbrella group of people is so loving and accepting, but in reality, there are lots of things that uh, we need to work on. So I, I think that's an incredibly important part of of understanding and, and growing um, as a community. Am I correct in th- remembering that this is the first research book on asexuality? It's the first, I believe, reported book. Okay. So there's been research books on it, and there's been books that are like um, Ace 101 and The Invisible Orientation by Julie Sandra Decker is a great book for that. And this is reported in that, you know, there's memoir, and I talked to and interviewed so many aces for the book. So what was your what your process of working on a project like this, having some, you know, what you wanted to say, but in the context of other works uh, about asexuality, was there anything in particular that you wanted to change or do with this that you hadn't seen done before? And what was your process for that? I really wanted to further the conversation because Ace 101 books, a lot of it was like, what is asexuality? Debunking myths, um, you know, kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, right? You know, giving people the groundwork for what asexuality is. But I wanted to connect asexuality to these bigger discussions we were having in society. So how do asexuality and feminism, how do they connect? Not just what is asexuality, but what does asexuality teach all of us? What does the ace lens teach all of us about um, sex positive feminism? What does the ace lens teach all of us about consent? What does it teach us about race and racial and sexual stereotypes? So I wanted to push the conversation forward, not just to what does asexuality mean? Why are aces, you know, worthy of respect? Am I asexual? To regardless of how you identify, um, how can learning about these experiences change the way you see the world for the better? I think you definitely accomplished that in this book. It is incredibly thorough. And uh, one of the things that you talk about in the book is the different types of attraction and how asexual people, when trying to understand themselves, they really can look at the different kinds of attraction and experience. So like, um, uh, like you can be attracted to someone's intellect and there's a bunch of different categories that people often think of. And that really just it really, I guess, expanded my mind in like, oh, yes, like this is a thing. Like, um, what was your experience looking into attraction and what were some of the unique things that you discovered when looking into maybe those different categories or, or how asexual people experience attraction in different ways? I was just really drawn to the ways that ace people really broke out the different parts of attraction. Because I think we just think about attraction as this like kind of one big thing, but it's so nuanced and so specific. So we already talked about how aces separate sexual attraction, romantic attraction. But one thing I thought was really interesting was that aces also separate out aesthetic attraction. And aesthetic attraction is the idea that there are some people that you find beautiful without that beauty being a sexual motivator. So the example I give is, you know, imagine you're a straight woman and you're looking at another woman and you don't want to have sex with her. But it's not like all women look the same to you, right? Like maybe there are some women that you find more attractive to you, even if there's no, you know, sexual attraction going on. So at my book launch, we actually played this game where I just put up a bunch of celebrities like 
um, Michaela Cole or like Rami Malek and I ask people to vote on, you know, are they cute? Are they hot, meaning conventionally attractive? Or are, are they like sexy, meaning that you feel personally drawn to them? And I think what it showed is that sometimes there are these people that you just feel drawn to and maybe it's not sexual, but there's just this feeling that like you like their vibe, you like their aesthetic and really digging into that and really like trying to separate all the different parts of attraction can be really clarifying. And sometimes at the end of the day, you're just like, I can't explain it. It's just a feeling. And that's kind of liberating too. You know, like there's all these lists online of what they call sexy, ugly celebs, you know, like Natalie Dormer from Game of Thrones, or some people say Pete Davidson is super sexy, even though he's not conventionally attractive. And I think that if you separate aesthetic attraction from sexual attraction, that's another interesting way to think about what draws you to people. That game sounds really fun. It sounds like you had a great time at your launch. I mean, who doesn't? Who doesn't love a game at a launch? I think that's pretty fabulous. But is there anything else that you wanted to cover that we haven't covered yet? No, I don't think so. I think the one thing I would say is that when I was writing the book, I felt a lot of pressure and responsibility because when there's a whole community that's so diverse, you know, you have a lot of sex repulsed aces, you have sex favorable aces, you have aromantic aces and so on, then there can be like, I really felt that I really had to get it right because there weren't that many other resources. You know, if there were so many other ACE books that they could read, then maybe if I, you know, focus on a more narrow part of the ACE community, then it would be fine. But because I knew that there weren't that many books, I really tried to be as diverse and find as, you know, many different experiences as I could. And of course, no book can cover everything because then it would just be an encyclopedia. But I think what I would say is I really hope that there are more and more books about asexuality because there shouldn't be any one defining book. And there are so many other topics within asexuality that are worthy of discussion and that other people can write better than me. So that would be the last thing. Well, I feel like there are so many other things that I could ask you about. I feel like this is a book that I'm going to be reading and and rereading for a long time because there's so many things that I feel like you could make each chapter its own book. And so just sitting there and digesting it all, it's just been a really enjoyable experience of learning, but I'm, I'm even more excited for asexual people who be able to see themselves in your book. Before I let you go, um, I did want to ask if you've already mentioned a, a few titles, but there are there any other books about asexuality or by ace authors or that feature ace characters that you would recommend to our listeners? Right. So I mentioned The Invisible Orientation. Um, Loveless is a novel um, by Alice Oseman, and that is great. And for people who are more on the academic side and maybe interested in theory and that kind of stuff, there's the book Asexual Erotics, and there's the book Asexualities, Feminist and Queer Perspectives, or it might be queer and feminist perspectives, but if you Google that, then it'll come up. So those are some good ones. And the um, back of the book has some suggestions for further reading as well. Oh, that's amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much for recommending those and for coming on the show. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for inviting me to chat about the book. I'd like to thank Angela Chen for talking with me about her book, Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex which is out now from Beacon Press. You can find her on social media at Changela, C-H-E-N-G-E-L-A, and on her website, angelachen.org, both of which will be linked in the show notes. 
I'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find me at KD Winchester. And thanks so much for listening. <laughs>